BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hey, friends, thanks so much for listening to the podcast. And we want to make sure that you know about all the other exciting ways to get more exclusive content from The Bill Press Show. We're on Patreon. Did you know that? On Patreon. So to go to Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash BP show to get videos that nobody else gets. All we ask is five bucks a month and you get access to daily commentary. And every week we put up a special interview just for our Patreon subscribers. Hey, it's a great way to support progressive media and get your hands on some fun, new, exclusive content. Thanks so much for supporting the show by going to patreon.com slash BP show. Giving you everything you need to fight the Trump administration. This is The Bill Press Show. Live at YouTube.com slash The Bill Press Show. That's right. Everything you need on this Friday, February 8th, 2019. Good morning. Good morning. I'm Igor Volsky sitting in for Bill Press to review ooh, the week we had from the State of the Union to the first hearing on gun control to the big introduction of the big new Green Deal. We got so much to talk about it and we're going to cover it all here this morning, get to all of the major stories, including the latest out of Virginia, a story that just keeps on getting worse by the moment. All of that. But first, this is the Full Court Press. Yes, indeed. Just a couple of other stories making news on a Friday. Sad news. We'll start with the sad news this morning. You're going to make me cry. Well, it's a bummer, but look, this is it's. Uh, we have to say farewell to former Congressman John Dingell, oh, John who Dingell. passed away last night at the age of 92, uh, best known for being the longest-serving member of Congress ever. 54 years, 21 days. Look at you. Yes, absolutely. In fact, it was back in 2013 that he passed that milestone. Remember this guy? John Boehner. Ladies and gentlemen, you'll raise your glass. <laughs> To a true man of the house, John Dingle. Here, <laughs> here. A great voice, that John Boehner. Yeah, the old John Boehner. Uh, that was his tribute to him. That was after Dingle passed the record for the longest-serving member of Congress in 2013. Uh, his wife, uh, Congresswoman Debbie Dingle, put out a statement yesterday, and lots of uh, condolences pouring in from Hillary Clinton, Barack Obama, Joe Biden, all the heavy hitters. Uh, uh, paying tribute to John Dingle had a long, long career. One of the things he did was exempt firearm manufacturers from public safety review. So the products they produce are not reviewed for public safety. His wife now has legislation to close that loophole. Oh, no kidding. How interesting. Mm -hmm. Uh, Valentine's Day is coming up. Do you celebrate Valentine's Day? I do celebrate Valentine's Day. I have not yet gotten my Valentine's Day gift. I don't know uh, if being a Valentine's Day Grinch is a thing, but I don't celebrate Valentine's Day. 
I think it's. So I'm not getting anything from you. I'm not going to get you anything. Okay. For Valentine's Day. Good to know, and yet I came in right and early. Yes. Well, here's the thing about Valentine's Day. A new study says that Americans, there's a smaller percentage of Americans that are actually celebrating the holiday. Uh, More and more people say we have enough holidays, and this is really one that's made up. They don't feel like doing it. But there is some good news if you do celebrate. Uh, Americans are expected to spend a record amount on Valentine's Day this year. So there are fewer people participating. But they're but the spending people that more. are participating are spending more money. So if you have a significant other and they, you're expecting something from them, you should expect something bigger than last year. Well, you know, this year I would encourage also folks to give to survivors. It's, of course, the year anniversary of the Parkland shooting. Um, and I'm sure there are funds set up to uh, to still help with the struggle that's that's going on after after that because you know, those effects after mass shootings yeah. last four years. Total spending in the United States on Valentine's Day will likely hit 20.7 million dollars. The average person, this is this is going to be a test, Igor. How much do you think is the appropriate amount to spend on a significant other for Valentine's Day? This is for Valentine's Day gift. Valentine's Day gift or gifts. I mean, I, I think maybe 40 to $50. The average, the average that Americans are going to spend on a Valentine's Day gift, $161.96. Oh that's too much. That is a lot. That's a lot of money, that's right? That's a lot. The last year's percentage was 143 so it's up 13%. Why is that? I have no idea. Well, it's I good. have Be- no idea. People want to make their loved ones feel special. I'm for that. So you're going to go out and spend $161 for Valentine's Day this year? 162 <laughs> I always wanted to be above average, Peter. <laughs> there you go. Why not just round it up to two hunch? All right, fine. Yeah, you know, go nuts. Have a ball. Uh, look, I, I, you're going to buy a lot of chocolate candy for $161. I love that dark chocolate. I love it. You're going to have to buy a lot of it. It's going to be delicious. <laughs> This is the Bill Press Show. That's right. The Bill Press Show this Friday, February 8th, 2019. I'm Rolski filling in for Bill Press to review the full, full week we had from the State of the Union to the first gun control hearings in the House in eight years Hard to believe. Eight years the House went without talking about the crisis engulfing our country of 40,000 Americans dying every year from guns. And by the way, I, as you can imagine, I work in, in the gun control space. I watched those hearings. I tweeted those hearings. So I'll have a lot to say. But let me start first with the ever-evolving, ever-depressing and horrifying story from Virginia. Uh, Just to bring folks up to speed, you all remember at the end of last week, I believe it was, what, last Friday, that news broke that Ralph Northam, the governor of Virginia, had on his medical school yearbook a picture of a man in blackface and a man in a KKK hood. 
Think about this for a second. It was a week ago. Less than a week ago. Less it was Friday late afternoon that this story broke. So when we did our show a week ago, Ralph Northam was still, you know, a perfectly a fine, perfectly fine governor of Virginia. Governor of Virginia. A week. It's been less than a week. <sighs> that was such a week. So the pictures come out, I think, from a local Virginia newspaper. Ralph Northam issues a statement apologizing for those photos, but not clarifying which of the characters he was portraying, shall we say, in that photo. And then the following day, just as leaders across the state and across the country condemned Northam's photo and called on him to resign, the governor issued a statement that he, in fact, was not pictured in those pictures and held a press conference saying that, well, he's going to stay in office despite the fact that his approval rating in the state dropped by 40 percentage points and every single Democrat, including almost all of the 2020 candidates, called on Northam to resign. Now, if that wasn't bad enough, early this week, we learned that Justin Fairfax, the lieutenant governor of Virginia, the man who would take over for Northam should he eventually step down, is facing charges of sexual harassment uh, from uh, a colleague back in 2004 at the Democratic National Convention. She claims that he forced her to perform sexual acts that she did not consent to. Let me just be, let me just be clear. These are charges of sexual assault. Assault. Sexual facing. assault. Yeah. Yes. Thank you. Uh, he denied the charges. Uh, there's now more detail coming out uh, of of the accuser who wrote a letter uh, detailing the allegations in some detail. She claimed that at the 2004 Democratic Convention. Uh, Justin Fairfax asked her to come up to his room that they made out. Uh, and then uh, he uh, uh, he performed actions that she did not consent to. So, you know, Democrats are uh, are, are now responding to this uh, initially. They, I think, gave Fairfax some time to explain exactly what was going on. And he was making the rounds, certainly in Virginia. Uh, uh, shoring up his support there. A report also came out earlier this week that he uh, referred to the accuser in a derogatory term uh, during a private meeting. Uh, That was then leaked. Uh, And so here's Kamala Harris yesterday uh, responding to the letter that has since surfaced that the accuser has written detailing her allegations against Justin Fairfax. Kamala Harris says that the allegations, that they seem credible. The letter written by the woman um, reads as as a credible um, account. And she calls for an investigation to get to the bottom of what happened. Certainly her letter reads as it's quite detailed and suggests that there's credibility there, but there needs to be an investigation to determine what exactly happened. Now, that appears to be the Democratic line. Let's have an investigation. Republicans in the state have, of course, called on Fairfax to resign. Now, if Fairfax was to step down as the lieutenant governor, Mark Herring, the attorney general of Virginia, who uh, just won well, in, the, in the, what is last year, 
won a second term and was seen by many uh, to be a candidate who could mount a credible run for the governor's office in Virginia. As all of this was going on, as Ralph Northam was denying that he was in the photos that he had previously acknowledged to be a part of, as Justin Fairfax denied allegations uh, that uh, he uh, engaged in sexual abuse, Mark Herring, the Attorney General of Virginia, admits that he too wore blackface while in college. Uh, he and his friend uh, did so, it looks like what, for Halloween, Peter, uh, and Mark Herring issuing a apology uh, for doing so, uh, but saying if he cannot repair the damage that he had caused, that he in fact would resign. Now, if Mark Herring was to also go, the line of succession then goes to the House of Delegates, uh, where the Republican speaker there, the leader of that House in Virginia, would become uh, the new governor of that state. And Democrats, of course, are very worried about what this means for 2020 and what it means for the census if Republicans take control of the state house. Whew. It's a lot. It's a lot. It's a whole lot. No, and I'm not even I'm not even including here that revelations also came out that Bobby Scott, the congressman from Virginia, was yeah. told of these allegations about Justin Fairfax a year ago yeah. that the accuser told Scott uh, of of what happened, that the Washington Post was investigating what happened, could not collaborate. The claims did not run the story. And of course, it's coming out now. Now, where does this leave us, really, uh, as we grapple with the fact that leaders who we thought had progressive values, right, who were determined or at least politically told us that they were going to represent all Americans and that they were certainly going to put forward policies that were going to help minority communities that we find out that 20, 30, however many years ago, they engaged in a disgusting racist display that is meant to, you know, caricature African-Americans. Um, and we're just finding out about it now. Yeah, it's the story is very troubling. And I and I've seen a lot of people on Twitter sort of mocking the South for all of this. And the South certainly has a lot of problems when it comes to race. Uh but this blackface uh phenomenon <laughs> that that we've seen, it take it took place everywhere. And I read a really interesting story yesterday about why the late night comics are having a really hard time. Sort That's of talking right. about this. Jimmy Fallon himself. Jimmy Fallon uh, in the 90s uh, wore blackface. I watched the video yesterday of him impersonating Chris Rock. This was on the main His good show. friend. His good friend. No, no. This is this is different. This was on, on Saturday Night Live. Oh, this oh is my. Jimmy Fallon. This is Jimmy, oh, Jimmy Fallon. Fallon. Who am uh, I thinking about? You're thinking about Jimmy Kimmel. I'm, Jimmy getting, Kimmel. I'm getting to yep. Jimmy Kimmel. Uh, so Jimmy Fallon, as a way of, of uh, sort of spoofing his friend, Chris Rock, and Chris Rock went on the record and said he thought it was fine and funny and all of that but still he put on blackface and affected a a an accent like he was chris rock uh, uh to to do a bit on snl jimmy kimmel also when he was on the man show 
did an impression of basketball player Carl Malone. Uh, and he went full blackface and stood there in a, a basketball uniform uh, doing Carl Malone. He also did Oprah Winfrey uh, with blackface on. Oh. And yeah. so they, it's, th- th- this is something that I don't want to say was acceptable, but people just didn't care about uh, in the 80s and 90s on a scale that you could get in trouble for. You know, well, time, time, not that that makes it okay. I'm just saying it would like the, people didn't get in trouble for it when they did it. You know, I just wish that uh, Megan Kelly was here to really cover and dive <laughs> into uh, all of all of these stories. I mean, the you know, part of the the problem with with her comments and and for what we're seeing now, and I think part of the reason why we're so disgusted is obviously the very racist nature of blackface, the racist history of blackface, the fact that it came about in the in the really the late 1800s, uh, I believe, as a way to caricature uh, African-Americans and portray them uh, as as kind of dumb folks who were happy to be slaves. That's the origin of blackface. And we saw it all the way through the the 1950s. Uh, that it was regularly used in movies uh, and on television, and we just we were having a conversation yesterday. Cyprian and I were talking about back in the nineties uh, on Comedy Central. They always, always, always had this movie playing on the weekends called Soul Man, mm-hmm. starring C. Thomas Howell. Uh, are you familiar with this? I'm not, but I think I read about it in a in an article, lar- a larger article about the problems of blackface. C. Thomas Howell is a white actor. And he, uh, the whole premise of the movie is that he dyes his skin black uh, so that he can get a scholarship to college. Uh, and so they could benefit from all that yeah. sweet, sweet affirmative action. Exactly. I see. Exactly. And it, like, <laughs> oh the, story, the, the movie is incredibly messed up in hindsight. Uh, but it was on TV all the time. All the time. Well, can we say that the way we're collectively reacting to these stories, right? The fact that you had Ralph Northam experience a 40% drop in his approval ratings, I'm sure. Uh, Is that bad? A 40% drop? That's, that Is seems that like good? a big, that seems like a, that a roller coaster Yeah, that feels drop. like a lot. <laughs> That the public conversation is one of disgust, that you have, you know, really both political parties now calling for him to step down. Does it show some level of evolution, right, in the right direction that we as a society are now reading and looking at these photos through a more just lens and through more just eyes than we had been in the 1990s when Comedy Central would play that movie, No Questions Asked, when Jimmy Kimmel and Jimmy Fallon would put on blackface and we would watch, right, and we would applaud, and those comedians would go on to have even larger careers and even bigger platforms. Yeah. If that happened today, if you have a, if you had an up and coming comedian today do what Jimmy Kimmel or Jimmy Fallon did, I don't think they'd end up on the Tonight Show, you know, five, ten years down the road. No that's I, that's a good thing, I, I, I right? Think that's a good point. And you know, I I was also reminded uh of uh the movie Tropic Thunder 
in 2008. Yes. 2008. And one of the- Robert Downey Jr., Robert right? Downey Jr. Yeah. is in blackface for the entire movie. And he's playing a character who's doing blackface. Not that that makes it any better. But that was in t- that was ten years ago. That, that was, 10, was years ten years ago. ago. And and you remember the conversation that we had about it ten years ago was fairly muted. Oh, right? absolutely. There were some eyebrows yeah. raised, but there wasn't any kind of great outcry. Yeah, I don't think in 2019 Robert Downey Jr. would take that kind of role. Oh, absolutely not. By the way, has anyone heard not. from him? Is he still he's still working? Yeah, he's one of the biggest actors in Hollywood. Igor. Oh yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, have you have you heard of Iron Man? Oh, is he the in Avengers that? And all oh, yeah, I've heard of all those things. I, just, I, I haven't actor. seen he's any like of those movies. So. That's, that's okay. right. Well, I'm just saying he's come. just a big okay. actor. But, but you know, <laughs> you know I mean, I, 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 look, blackface <laughs> is is unacceptable and bad, and anybody who did it should have to answer for it, period. Yes. The thing that's Well, so- no, no, not to answer for it. I think if you – here's what I think. I think if you are Jimmy Fallon or Jimmy Kimmel and you did blackface – you need to address it yeah. and explain to your audience who you used to amuse with this kind of entertainment why yeah. it's wrong, yeah. right? You have a responsibility yes. as someone who did this to show how you've learned why that's wrong yeah. and use this as an educational moment because the problem is the re- part of the reason why the Jimmys <laughs> – did this is because we as a society don't have these conversations right. often That's enough. Right. We right. don't have it in our schools. We don't have it in our public square. And so this isn't to excuse any of it. It's just to say that we have to use this as an opportunity to not just, you know, rightfully shame Ralph Northam for what he did and call on him to resign, but to also begin having a conversation about why such representations are wrong uh, and why, you know, and what we what we have to learn from them. I also think that the uh, particularly damaging piece about this for Ralph Northam, when you compare it to uh, uh, Herring, uh, not to say that what Herring did was uh, good and okay and acceptable, but the Ralph Northam stuff, it's it's someone in blackface standing next to someone in a full clan outfit. I mean, that is just uh, unbelievable. That, in I 1984, think... I mean, before I was born, but a time when a, it, it, to me, it, I mean, and clearly to Virginians and to Americans across the country, for that to, for that A, for those people to come up into a party or whatever that was, A, dress that way, B, for that picture to be taken. C for that picture to end up in a yearbook is indeed the fact that Ed Gillespie, who ran against uh, Northam in the election last year, that whoever he employed on his campaign could not find this photo. (laughs) I mean, my goodness. That person, whoever his director of opposition research should clearly never work again when you Just look as at a when, side note that being said when you look at the racist campaign that ed gillespie ran he might have seen ed that gillespie could have helped at ralph ed, ed, oh goodness you know ed gillespie ran one of the most racist campaigns we've seen in recent years so you know and uh and the fact that he didn't win uh, i think is a relief for for all of us not only because you know He's not the governor of Virginia, but also because his racist campaign would have created a template 
for for the midterms, which were already filled with all kinds of racial <laughs> racial fears uh, and didn't need uh, Ed Gillespie anyway. Uh, so, we'll, yeah, well, I mean, obviously the news won't stop breaking on the situation in Virginia. Uh, and uh, but, man, what a, again, hard to believe only a week, only a week. And you've had like thunderous events uh, going on. In the state and, you know, on Fairfax, uh, we'll see if there's going to be an investigation. It, I, I haven't seen anything that says they're moving towards that end. Uh, but but certainly, you know, given the uh, the new details in this letter, uh, given the uh, how detailed they are, uh, it, it feels like, you know, this is something that 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 really needs to be looked at. And Justin Fairfax uh, really uh, needs to uh, needs to address. Now, the other uh, thing that happened this week is you had three hearings in the House, one on gun control, as we mentioned, the second uh, on climate change, uh, and then the third, uh, the House Ways and Means Committee, which is one of the most powerful committees in the House, uh, began to think about subpoena subpoenaing <laughs> How do you say that word? Subpoena, subpoena, name. Trump's tax return. It's not somebody's name. It's just a word that I mess up. Uh, getting, I'll say getting, getting Trump's tax returns uh, and analyzing those returns by passing, um, uh, what are they, regula- is it a regulation or, 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 or legislation, uh, I suppose, that would compel people who are running for high public office to release their tax returns. Uh, you know, <laughs> naturally, uh, Republicans uh, claimed that this was a witch hunt uh, and that Democrats were looking to, as Jackie Walarski, a Republican member of the House from Indiana, claimed Democrats are trying to weaponize tax law against their political opponents. This is all about weaponizing our tax laws to target a political foe. Yeah, see, I told you she should say that, and, and she, <laughs> she did. She did. She said exactly that. And she did. But Democrats arguing that President Trump broke with years of tradition by failing to release his returns, then had a cascade of different reasons why he wouldn't release them. Um, they argue that sunlight on the president's returns on those seeking higher office is oh so critical to ensure that a that candidate has paid their taxes that b they're not profiting off of the policies that they put forward uh and that c uh there's not any kind of entanglement uh, in your taxes that could jeopardize your ability to serve or could influence your decisions in office and to ultimately ensure that the decisions you make in office are guided by what, by what you perceive to be in the best interest of the country versus what is in your own personal best interest. And certainly with this president, a president who refused to recuse himself untie himself, untangle himself from his business, whose children both advise him and run his business, and whose 
inaugural committee has now come under investigation for possibly uh, using those funds in the committee to enrich the Trump administ- uh, Trump company, I should say, and Trump family members. Uh, given all of that, and given the fact that you have dignitaries all around the world who have business before the United States, that they're staying in Trump hotels, that they're paying two th- north of $2,000 a night to stay in Trump hotels that, of course, directly enrich, enrich the Trump organization. Given that all of this is happening and given that this president is going to great lengths to hide his tax returns, which, of course, begs the question, what do you have to hide? Why are you not releasing them? Who do you owe debts to? Who has leverage over you? Those are frankly questions that need to be answered. And those are answers the American people deserve. You know, I think a lot of people saw what happened during the election and gave a sort of collective shrug about Donald Trump's Donald Trump's tax returns because they didn't understand the issue or they didn't realize what could possibly be in those tax returns or uh yeah, he says he's rich, but he's not as rich as he says he is. Well, we've known that for a long time or, you know, whatever reason. But uh, Noah Bookbinder, who's the head of Crew, actually had a great comment about this yesterday and said... We could learn other things about his finances that we haven't even thought to ask yet. That's the thing. Like, we have no idea. <laughs> and this is a guy who ran a unscrupulous uh, business and... Who knows what's in those tax returns? Like, who knows? Who knows? You know, I gotta, I gotta say, this inauguration stuff, all of the stuff that's coming out of the Southern District of New York, all of the information that is that was seized during the raid of Michael Cohn's office, that is now spurring some of these other investigations, including that deep dive into the money that was flowing into the inaugural committee. This feels, Peter, like just the beginning. Oh, yeah. Just the beginning of investigations that are going to haunt the Trump organization way after this president is out of office. That is going to haunt his children for years and years and years to come because these guys came into office and tried to undo you know, just decades of precedent and regulation and oversight and tried to get around the law in order to enrich themselves. And now we know, by the way, from the Michael Cohn tapes that the woman who was running the inauguration and helped plan the 18 parties that were happening there that she complained to Michael Cohn in phone calls that he for some reason recorded (laughs) and that investigators now have complaining of the way the Trump organization and the Trump adult children were meddling in what was going on and were possibly doing so in an effort to profit from the inauguration. That's how this this that's how this administration started. <laughs> there Even is no grift before too small. day one, right? Yeah. Exactly. 
the approach was we are using the presidency we are using our democratic system to enrich ourselves and we have laws in this country against that and what we've seen in the last couple of days and certainly in the last months and even years the slow drip 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 of accountability slowly making its way down and certainly now with the democratic controlled house there are even fewer places to run for the trump family for trump associates for people like like michael cohen by the way what is going on with the michael cohen investigation he was supposed to testify what next week to congress that's now been moved to february 28th He's has to report to jail what next month he has such a small window all of these committees want to talk to him he's got a busy february he's got he's a, <laughs> gonna be a busy man testifying prison time you know there's a lot for us to find out and you know what these hearings and i think the 28th might be a closed door hearing i'm not sure is it it is but i think you know the just the public service of having a public hearing for the American people to really understand what's happening plays such an important educational role in putting all of the pieces together and clearly telling the American people what this government, what this administration has been up to. All right, quick break for me. We're gonna talk budget next and can Congress avert another shutdown just days away as lawmakers in Capitol Hill try to reach a big deal that the president would support. I'm Igor Volsky. You're listening to The Bill Press Show. We'll be right back. Follow us on Twitter at BP Show. This is The Bill Press Show. That's right. Tweet us at BP Show, at BP Show. We want to do hear from you. And hey, you tweet a good comment. We might read it on air. By the way, I'm at Igor Volsky on Twitter. That's because I am Igor Volsky. I'm filling in for Bill Press on this Friday, February 8th, 2019. Now, the problem is I am trying in my head to do 15 minus 8, which I think is 7, right? Did I do that right? 7. Nailed it. 7. 7 days away from a potential government shutdown as a special committee of 17 lawmakers works on a compromise to keep the government open and to figure out what to do with the president's $5.7 billion request and supplemental funding for a wall along the U.S.-Mexico border. For an update on where the negotiations stand, we're joined by Caitlin Emma. She is the budget and appropriations reporter for Politico on Twitter at Caitlin Z. Emma. Somebody, somebody take Caitlin Emma Rude or online at Politico.com. See, Addie Gorvolsky, I don't have that problem. Well, Nobody wanted it. You know, actually, it was funny. I was just doing something and I realized that I don't own Igorvolsky.com. So I went on. I bought Igorvolsky.com, Igorvolsky.org. Nobody wanted it. It was available practically free. They're probably <laughs> giving it away to me. Sometimes that's, it's just nice to feel wanted. Either. Thank you. Yeah, well, exactly. Exactly. But that's the nice thing. You know, there's very few nice things about being a Russian person in America these days. Yeah. That is one of them, is that nobody wants your domain names. Okay. So between that 
And the Russian hat I wear when it's cold out, <laughs> it's really the only way I can lean in and be Russian these days. Okay. Just Caitlin, in case you're wondering. Okay. Now you know. Gotcha. Anyway, moving on. <laughs> Great. Moving on to the real, to the real stories. Um, so 17 lawmakers trying to find a large deal that would satisfy the border wall question, the border security question, as well as... Uh, get appropriate get what appropriations for a bunch of different agencies those that were closed during the shutdown how has that been going because I remember was it last week the president said they were wasting their time but now it looks like they may be close to a deal right lots of mixed messages from the White House and as you probably remember a few weeks ago the president um, agreed to sign a short-term spending fix so that these 17 lawmakers could get to work on fulfilling his border security request. So uh, the government shut down for five weeks because he was demanding $5.7 billion for a border wall. He is still unlikely to get that. And we're still not sure what he's going to do when these lawmakers unveil a deal, which is likely going to be... This weekend, Monday, they're under a very tight deadline. Uh, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi has said she wants to follow this sort of procedural 72-hour rule. Give everyone a chance to read the bill. Give everyone, yeah. So this is a new thing that House Democrats um, are, you know, say that they are going to stick to. So, you know, by the way, if I remember correctly, I believe when John Boehner took over in 2011 that he had a similar rule. Paul Ryan had a similar rule. All those rules in the early days of those Congresses were followed and then were later just kind of pushed aside. So this is a familiar thing. Folks read the legislation, makes a lot of sense. But in the reality of getting things done on deadlines, that often falls by the wayside. When Congress wants to pass something, they can do it very quickly, like they did a few weeks ago. I mean, we woke up that Friday morning. The government was still shut down. You know, hundreds of thousands of workers had missed two paychecks and all of a sudden flights at LaGuardia were starting to get grounded and everybody. And that's when things And got there was a like picky. a shift. Yeah, there's this sort of tonal shift like this is a problem. Like it's a problem to have hundreds of thousands of workers go without pay, you know, two paychecks. But uh, that was the day that Congress lickety split, you know, passed a short term spending fix. The president signed it. So anyway, we're looking at uh, a border security deal to sort of fulfill this request by the president. It's likely going to include money for technology. It's likely going to include money for fencing of some kind. Uh, But it seems like Democrats and Republicans, you know, are are, where they fall on the numbers is really where it's going to be interesting. Like I said, Trump is unlikely to get any where close to his $5 billion demand for an actual, you know, physical wall. So how much money they provide for fencing, how many miles of fencing, uh, how many detention beds is included in this package? Like, that's a big sticking point for Democrats. So where they fall on some of those numbers will be really interesting to see. And as part of this broader, you know, package, they have to keep a quarter of the government open. So we have to pass... You know, six massive spending bills that were already agreed upon um, last year. So that's not super controversial. And a certain amount of disaster aid for, you know, communities in California that were ravaged by wildfires and 
hurricane relief and, you know, relief for Puerto Rico. Democrats are looking at that. Whether or not Republicans allowed that to be included in this is something to watch. But what Trump is going to do, nobody really knows. Um, It's sort of he hasn't given any sort of hard public commitment. Um, the, The chairman of the Senate Appropriations Committee, Richard Shelby, briefed him yesterday on sort of the parameters. Of and it. was very optimistic. And when he, he came out House. of it and he was like beaming. He's like all excited. He's like, I, I think this is the best I've felt, you know, since last year. He's got a big smile on his face. So that's all we're really working with right now in terms of whether or not. So the president will sign this. Nobody knows where where the details are. I mean, I've seen reports of members saying we're 99 percent there. We're 99.8 percent there. Again, as you point out, they don't know where the president's going to be on this. But in terms of the border security provisions, I remember was it in late December when Democrats made an offer of what some three billion dollars is that right or two billion dollars for border security that included the technology, maybe some fencing, the drone stuff, this idea that you don't need to build a wall, that you can use technology uh, in certain areas uh, around the border where it would be effective. Do you have a sense of how what Democrats offered before the shutdown, how much that's going to be reflected in this in this negotiation? Because both parties at least have common ground that, yes, we need to do more in border security. The question is, is it an actual physical barrier or is it something different? So that's a huge question. Uh, the spending bill that lawmakers put together last year for the Department of Homeland Security included $1.3 billion $1. Okay. in border security. So uh, where this new deal comes out and how much different it looks from that is something that uh, we're going to be looking at really closely in terms of the deal. But like I said, uh, on I believe it was Wednesday, these 17 lawmakers who are part of this committee, you know, charged with crafting a deal, they were briefed by Border Patrol profici- uh, officials in this sort of very secure room in the Capitol building. And there were all these reporters staking it out, you know, look, waiting for anybody to come out, you know. Tell to, me something. Yeah. What did you learn? Like, how much fencing do you need? Anything. <laughs> Just please tell us something. And um, it seems like Democrats and Repub- Republicans were still pretty f- far apart on like, you know, we need we need more technology. We need smarter tech. You know, the idea of a wall is antiquated versus like, no, barriers need to be part of this. So where what is prioritized Mm -hmm. in the final deal will be really interesting. I think, you know, some folks are saying uh, there will be a significant amount of Democrats who won't be able to accept this because it will include money for fencing or some kind of And Pelosi barrier. said early on it's not going to have border wall money. She has said no border wall money. I mean, she has shown an openness to a specific kind of fencing. Um, so I think a lot of folks think that, you know, Democrats are, you know, perhaps need to accept the fact that there will be some money for that, but a significant money for, you know, amount of money for technology and, and, you know, smarter ways of stopping illegal activity at the border. And, so, yeah. and let's talk about the politics of all of this, because mm. post shutdown, it feels like the president is really boxed in. You have Democrats who are saying, as we mentioned, no wall money, but yes to border security in other ways. 
And then you have Republicans saying, we don't want another shutdown. We don't want you to declare a national emergency. So he's really boxed in. And it feels like even though earlier was it last week, as I mentioned, that he said, Ugh, this committee is a waste of time. I'm just going to do national emergency, national declaration that uh, here we are on this Friday with the president possibly being in a position where he's going to have to accept whatever Congress comes up with. And that's like really unfamiliar territory for him. It is. And, it, you know, you mentioned earlier that for the past couple of weeks he's been saying and tweeting, you know, this is a waste of time. Everybody's wasting their time. You know, I have this national emergency declaration in my back pocket, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, some of my colleagues are now reporting that uh, they are looking at, you know, sort of a uh, less drastic form of executive action that would allow them to free up some money. Mm. Um, but yeah, he really doesn't have any other options. Um, Republicans hate the idea of a national emergency declaration because it opens sort of a can of worms where, you know, uh, you sort of have this unlimited executive authority to, you know, declare whatever you want a disaster and use money for it. And, you know, people have made the it's argument. a real big precedent that sets. Right. People yeah. have made the argument that, you know, the next Democratic president will come in and, you know, declare health care emergency. And then now we have to do Medicare for all. Or So there's this argument on on the right that this is not a good idea. Uh, any sort of form of executive th authority is not a good idea. And uh, Senator Mitch McConnell who, you know, really dictates what comes to the Senate floor has said, I don't want to do another short term spending fix. We Just have don't want to kick it down the road. No, we have a lot to do. The specter of shutdown, you know, continuing to loom over all of that impedes all of that work. So where does that, you know, leave the president? It's sort of unclear. He might just have to stomach this and I don't know, maybe some sort of executive action will happen. Well, apparently, Caitlin, there may be a third way because uh, as you guys report, mega all stars visit border to plot private, private wall project. What is that about? So there is, yeah, there, it's a very improbable quest, but there is a group <laughs> of... Um, nice way of putting it. <laughs> it's an improbable quest of, uh, you know, a group of hardline conservative Trump supporters like Eric Prince, um, you know, Sheriff, what's his name, Dave Clark, uh, yeah. those folks who are trying to build the wall uh, with private money. And I believe they had some sort of like, and I I don't know a ton about this. I think they had some sort of GoFundMe or Kickstarter or something online that, you know, kicked this whole effort off. But uh, yeah, so they're down there. I don't know. They they took a field trip. Um, they're scoping it out. I don't I don't know what comes of that. You know, they might be able to. I think they recognize they can't raise billions, but you know, they could well, raise there's a GoFundMe. Right? They could there's raise a millions. Yeah, and build some. Some wall. <laughs> well, this fight uh, that we're certainly going to, you know, well, it's either going to be a fight after the 15th or it's not, right? Depending on what the president does, we don't know what the president's going to do. But it's going to be the first of many in this new Congress as they tackle uh, future fiscal issues, uh, the debt ceiling, budget caps to avert a sequester. It feels like we're going to see a version of this movie 
over and over and over again. Right. Well, there are a number of big fiscal fights ahead uh, this year, very important ones. Um, You know, not only are we still looking backward into 2019, finishing those spending bills, we have to start work on next year's spending bills. And that starts with the president's budget request, which the five-week shutdown has delayed by more than a month. Um, The Office of Management and Budget told us they expect or they're, you know, quote unquote, tracking to release it mid-March. That that could be optimistic. You know, that could bleed into April. Um, you know, I'm, I'm not sure. But that whole process kicks off with that request. And uh, I believe the goal uh, among some in Congress is to get those spending bills done by June, which is extremely ambitious. In addition to that, uh, we have to come to a deal on raising the budget caps or uh, about $126 billion in automatic cuts will hit defense and Mm non-defense spending. This is from that grand bargain during the Obama era. That would be extremely painful. Nobody wants that. Republicans don't want that to to hit defense. You know, Democrats don't want that to hit non-defense spending. And, um, you know, for a while there was some talk of like, well, maybe we should toss in the budget caps or something like that in this deal to to avoid a second shutdown, uh, which we have a week left to go. And, you know, that was sort of roundly dismissed as that's super duper ambitious. <laughs> this is like a very big, you know, discussion that needs to happen uh, to toss that in could potentially be poisonous or make things uh, un- unnecessarily difficult. So. That's another thing. Um, And it also, I'll just mention, because all of these fights are so critical, right, and moving these pieces of legislation is so critical, they also provide leverage points for the administration, maybe for Democrats in the House, to move agenda pieces that they see as crucial, right? There's a, a practice in Washington, both parties do it, it's been going on for ages, where you take a priority that you can't move on your own as a standalone measure and you attach it to a piece of what's called must-pass legislation and that's how you get things through. So for instance, during the Obama era, that's how Don't Ask, Don't Tell was repealed in 2009, December of 2009, 10, 2010, JK, it was 10. Um, And so, you know, who knows what kind of brinksmanship, what kind of theater we're going to see what this president is going to do. I mean, he shut the government down to try to get the wall. Um, So that's kind of part of all part of the equation here as we think about what do these fiscal fights look like? What else is going to be a part of them? Right. And I think, you know, Republicans and Democrats realize that this is not a normal White House. And, um, <laughs> They've caught on. Well, Not normal. <laughs> I mean, in, in normal circumstances, I mean, you know, for example, in addition to the budget caps, another thing that we have to do in the coming months is raise the debt ceiling or the country goes into default, uh, which is would be catastrophic, right? And you would think that everybody uh, roundly agrees that, you know, we must raise the debt ceiling, right? And it should be a process that is you know, easy enough uh, to get done. But this is not a normal White House. And the folks surrounding the president, I don't know that there's a ton of confidence in in some of those folks to to brief him on these issues. And I think, you know, with the 35-day shutdown, um, that has sort of shaken some lawmakers into thinking, well, you know, we're going to do everything we can to get this done. But 
you know, does he ultimately, will he ultimately support it? Or, you know, like mm-hmm. you said, will he try and either tack something else onto it or something like that? So there are major, major fiscal fights ahead. And, you know, the shutdown started, to, has delayed early negotiations on some of this stuff. Um, and sort of the, the, the I guess the bipart the not bipartisan, the partisan sort of like Paul that hung over that, you know, five week period uh, doesn't like bode well for doesn't a lot of these well, things. No. I mean, part of this is, you know, there's like a lot of what's done on Capitol Hill. It comes as a result of relationships that lawmakers have with each other and how they work together and what kind of rapport they have, how willing they are to come together. And you're absolutely right. After you have the grueling fight of the shutdown, which clearly divided everybody along partisan lines, how can those two sides, after 35 days of screaming at each other, now come together and make anything work smoothly? Right. Well, I think, uh, you know, both Republicans and Democrats with these high stakes fiscal fights know um, that they have to get done. And I mean, you would hope that uh, the president at some point realizes that, too. I mean, he did sign a short term funding fix to mm-hmm. reopen the government. I think at some when point he had no choice. Right. And I think at some point, I mean, it was truly, you know, just an untenable situation. Um, you just couldn't win. So. I think the country going into default would be a similar situation that, you know, just has to be avoided. Yeah, that that would not be a good thing. The country going into default, although, you know, having a shutdown also not a good thing. Right. We had the longest one in history. Is there any sense, by the way, or have any estimates come out? Because I remember during previous shutdowns and maybe this just takes a little longer, uh, a accounting of the cost, the enormous cost to the economy Hmm. of shutting down the government and what that means for growth. Uh, You know, the president during the State of the Union touted the incredible economy and the miracle economy that he's presiding over. Uh, The jobs report uh, didn't seem to really reflect all, all, you know, the, the at least the consequences of the of the shutdown, um, the latest job report, the latest numbers. So is there a sense yet of do we pay a price as an economy for that 35-day shutdown? Well, the Congressional Budget Office did release a report on on the cost of the shutdown, uh, sort of along with their annual, you know, every year, every January, they release sort of a 10-year economic outlook. And they they released alongside that Mm. a report detailing the cost of the shutdown. And they found that in, in total, it cost the economy... Um, I I believe about $11 billion, but based on what we, you know, anticipate making up for that in growth, the total cost and economic, like foregone economic activity was about $3 billion. So, you know, a lot of Democrats obviously seized on that and were like, look how awful, like, you know what I mean? Like, this is terrible. And, you know, this was a a massive uh, came at a massive price, et cetera, et cetera. And, and Republicans questioned the numbers, and, right? Well, Republicans were didn't question the numbers. They just know that what is true, um, it's not economically that significant. Um, it's a small number. It's a f- it depends on your context. <laughs> right. It's an itty bitty fraction, fraction of, you know, the overall um, overall GDP. But what the CBO, um, you know, the director of the CD- CBO, who is one of the leading economists, said in releasing this report was, yeah, you know, $3 billion is not that significant, but 
the cost to individual federal workers um, was great, you know. Those uh, stories still are so heartbreaking. Right, and contractors, so you cannot yeah. write that off. Mm-hmm. And they, you know, were very um, clear in saying that some of that personal cost, that's very difficult yeah. to quantify. Yeah. So, Caitlin Emma, she's the budget and appropriations reporter for Politico on Twitter at Caitlin Z. Emma. Caitlin, thank you so much. I'm Igor Volsky, filling in for Bill Press. Quick break, and we're back. Stay with us. This is The Bill Press Show. Hey, friends. Don't be a stranger. Keep up to date with all of The Bill Press Show happenings around the clock on social media. Here's how. You can follow us on Twitter at BP Show or on Facebook at www.facebook.com slash Bill Press Show and on YouTube, youtube.com slash The Bill Press Show. And remember, if you haven't already done so, make sure to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. And while you're there, please rate and review the show. That means a lot to us. And thanks so much for your support. Giving you everything you need to fight the Trump administration. This is The Bill Press Show, live at youtube.com slash The Bill Press Show. That's right, The Bill Press Show on this Friday, February 8th, 2019. I'm Igor Volsky, filling in for Bill Press. As we get into all of the news of the week, and my goodness, we have just had congressional hearings from from bookend to bookend. We've had a State of the Union address. We have so much to get into, including all of the latest developments around the uh, Mueller investigation. Of course, the uh, hearing with Matthew Whitaker, the acting attorney general, kicks off in the Judiciary Committee in just about an hour and a half. We'll see how that goes. That might be just a little theatrical. Uh, We'll get into all of that next, but first... This is the Full Court Press. All righty, just a couple of other stories making news. So it feels like I do a story like this every couple of months. But there is, another, there is another state that is taking a look at charging people to look at pornographic websites. Oh. This time it is Hawaii. There oh. is a bill that is being brought up that is proposing... That if you're using the internet to look at porn, you pay $20, $20 fee, and that unlocks pornographic websites for you to look at. Now, of course... Love a good revenue raiser. Yes. As we know, <laughs> the internet is really for porn. <laughs> Studies have shown that uh, porn sites get uh, more better traffic than Netflix, Amazon, and Twitter combined. <laughs> combined. <laughs> So there is uh, uh, some legislation moving through the House and Senate in Hawaii. People over the age of 18 pay a one-time fee of $20, and that would unlock pornographic websites for you to look. My goodness. And what is the rationale that this is a revenue rate? Like, why are people? Why, why? Well, it's the, 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 the rationale actually isn't as crazy as others have been. Others were for, like, purely religious reasons. They think it's bad, and they want to tax the evil. But Hawaii, they said, look, they got a real problem because 
it's really hard to keep kids from going onto these pornographic websites, mm. right? Kids are using the internet all the time now, so how do you keep them off of these websites? It's really hard. Well, part the pun. Pe- but it's <laughs> very hard to keep the kids off the websites, so they're saying, like, look, 20 bucks, you have to have a credit card, you have to, like, figure this out, and that way, like, you, you will get some of the kids off of the website. Well, Peter, I'm not saying it's a good or bad idea. Peter's clearly lobbying for this. No! On his way to Hawaii as we speak. <laughs> Please yeah. don't. So, uh, in other news, you remember a couple of years ago, Panera actually announced that they were opening up a string of stores called Panera Cares. It oh, was a pay-what-you-want oh. type of restaurant. So you walk in, you order, and then they say, you pay us what you think you should pay us. Some people paid nothing. Some people paid three times, four times, five times more than what they were supposed to pay. Well, like sad news. <laughs> sad news. It is coming to an end. Oh. There was one left in Boston. It is going to be closing on February 15th. So, oh, a failed experiment. Yeah. They started this in 2010, so it's been going on for almost a decade so now. February 15th. Panera Cares could close, and our government could close. <laughs> That's again. right. A key date. Yeah, uh, yeah, it's going to be very, very big. And there is a new uh, index by Twenty Four Seven Wall Street to figure out what are the worst cities to live in in America. Uh oh. And I just want to point out that they did have a set of criteria here how they figured this out. They said who has high crime rates, widespread poverty, weak job markets. And they took a look at what you have in terms of options for entertainment and cultural attractions. All right. So give us some names. The worst city in America. Are you ready? I'm ready. Do you have any guesses, by the way? Oh, maybe like like Tampa or something. I'll say this. It's, it, it, this <laughs> is not, Tampa's a great guess, by the way. That's my pick. Mendota, California. Mendota, um. California. The poverty rate is 49.5%. Wow. They have a very high violent crime rate, uh, and it's it's just very, very bad there. Number two is Florida City, Florida. Number three is California City, California. Oh. Number four is Macau, Hawaii. Hawaii. Oh, you don't think of Hawaii as being a terrible city. You do Hawaii. I'm about fi- to get worse with this new tax. Yeah, yes, exactly. going to go back up to one. Yeah. This is the Bill Press Show. The Bill Press Show on this Friday, February 8th, 2019. I'm Igor Volsky sitting in for Bill Press as we get ready to dive in. Into the latest on the Mueller investigation, I am joined by my former colleague Max Bergman. He's a senior fellow at the Center for American Progress on Twitter at Max Bergman. That's two N's. And online at AmericanProgress.org. Max, it's so good to see you. Good to see you. So lots to unravel. I feel like last night and yesterday afternoon, all of the different pieces of the story, all different stories collided together from the uh, uh, from now we know uh, about investigations that are going on into the inaugural committee uh, of Donald Trump that came out of tapes seized from Michael Cohn, mm-hmm. um, that, that's still unfolding. You have Matthew Whitaker, who is going to be testifying this morning before the House Judiciary Committee, 
all of the jockeying that was going on uh, leading up to that hearing. Can't wait. Um, And of course, the House Intel Committee Mm -hmm. announcing that they are going to be opening up, opening back up, I should say, uh, their investigation into foreign connections between this administration and Trump uh, and and Russia and a whole host of of other pieces. Where do we begin? (laughs) Where do we begin? Maybe let's start with uh, with uh, Chairman Schiff, Adam Schiff, mm-hmm. forgot his first name for a second there. <laughs> uh, Adam Schiff, uh, the day after the president's State of the Union, announcing, despite the president's plea to Congress, "Don't investigate me." Yeah, that's not what he sounds like, but you know, <laughs> Peter does a much better job. Uh, no, I don't. No, I don't. <laughs> not of Adam Schiff. No, but that was that was not bad. Trump. I was doing Trump. Don't investigate me. I don't. I don't do Trump. You don't do Trump. <laughs> that wasn't bad. Your your Clinton is good though. I'll give you that. As as we've heard. So, uh, but the day after, Adam Schiff saying we're opening this investigation back up. Max, why is this significant? And how much larger is the scope of this renewed investigation than from what we saw when Republicans had the majority on the committee and closed it, saying no connections, no collusion. There's nothing. <laughs> right. Oh, I think it's I think it's very significant. You know, a year ago, it's basically a year ago that the Republicans said, "Okay, we're done. We, you know, we've done our investigation, and and we've the Republican report uh, with Nunez and the House uh, Intel Committee with Devin, uh, uh, member Devin Nunez." Ex- exonerated Trump said they found no collusion. I like how all he gets is member. There's no former chairman. There's member. Now he's I like a it. ranking member. <laughs> I like it. Um, and I think with Adam, I think this has actually been a very significant week uh, in the showdown with the administration over oversight. You know, the the January was consumed with the showdown over the shutdown of the government, and now we're sort of shifted in some ways to oversight. It's both. Uh, the showdown with Whitaker uh, and House Judiciary and Schiff uh, immediately after the State of the Union. And I think what this is indicating is, no, we're going. We are, you know, the House Democrats are going to investigate and do proper oversight. And what happened during the previous two years, I think it's important to sort of, you know, two years ago, the House Intel Committee created this investigation. They said, okay, Republicans relented, said we'll create an investigation into whether there was Russia collusion between the Trump campaign and, and Russian interference. Uh, and then they you know, basically spent those past two years, uh, the Republicans working very hard to protect Trump, to undermine an actual credible investigation into what happened. Uh, and so in some ways, House Republicans are very complicit in uh, in all that's gone on in the last two years. And House Democrats have tried to conduct a thorough investigation. They've uh, uh, you know, cross-examined a lot of these witnesses, had a lot of these witnesses lie to their faces, or at least they believe that there a lot a lot of perjury occurred. Uh, and so now, you know, there are documents that they want to subpoena that House Republicans prevented them from invest, uh, uh, seizing. Uh, and there are witnesses they want to call back. Uh, that that you had contradictory. Yeah, statements. they've also found out some of the witnesses lied to them. Yes, and so I think what we're seeing now, which is, by the way, you do when you're innocent. Yeah, you just you you mislead, <laughs> you commit perjury when you have nothing to hide. Well, you're the, very very innocent. That's yeah, very innocent. That's how innocent well, people behave. In the, case you know, you're wondering. You know, the, the classic Devin Nunes, you know, own goal. I think we're about to see where a lot of people testifying in front of the House Intel Committee thought that this was a free pass to commit perjury. 
because they nothing was going to happen to them because they were protected by uh, Devin Nunes and House Republicans. But that doesn't well, really work. You lie to Congress. Yeah. It doesn't. There's not really a. Uh, maybe there is a time limit, but at least it's, we're in the statute of limit. We're not outside the statute of limitations. Um, and so I think what we're going to see now is shift picking up the investigation where Democrats had sort of left off. They've been tracking this very closely for the past two years, and there's a lot. I, there's a lot more to investigate, but I think it's going to be sort of very hard charging uh, in the weeks and months ahead. And so then, you know, when we get to Matthew Whitaker uh, and, you know, the the kind of back and forth over will he not testify? Now, this we should we should note that Jerry Nadler, who's the chairman of the House Judiciary Committee, sent a letter to Whitaker. Uh, was it a month ago, a little bit, a little bit ago saying here are the kinds of questions I want to ask you. Yeah. I want you to take this letter to the president and ask him if he's going to exert flex executive privilege on any of these issues. And if he does not, I expect, Matthew Whitaker, when you come before my committee, you answer these questions because what we had seen with previous administration officials and former Attorney General Jeff Sessions is that they would avoid answering key questions by claiming that the president could, at some point in the future, declare um, executive privilege and, and thus get out of answering the question. What kinds of questions does the chairman want to ask Whitaker that he's afraid that Whitaker would you know, weasel his way out of? What does he want to know? I, I think a lot of the questions will revolve around the special counsel and how he has uh, overseen that. Uh, and some of the questions I think may result, uh, uh, refer to, did he provide any advanced warning of potential of indictments or other developments in the special counsel case to the White House? There are, are some clear indications that the White House had had some heads up that, that certain things were happening. Uh, and, uh, and you know, what was, what was the role of Whitaker? You know, we, when we think about that BuzzFeed story that came out, um, uh, a few weeks ago, you know, the BuzzFeed story alleged that, uh, Michael Cohen, when he lied to Congress, that that lie was effectively directed by the white house and by Trump himself. Uh, and that there, the, and the story said that they had, uh, the Mueller investigation had tangible evidence of that. Well, something happened in which the Department of Justice and the White House decided to exert pressure on the Mueller investigation to issue that uh, that public denial. So, what was Whitaker? Oh, you think the White House pressure? Well, that's that that's been reported. Oh, that, that, oh okay. that the that the White House, uh, you know, uh, uh, knew I probably knew that Mueller didn't actually have uh, physical evidence of that was uh, that that there was maybe something slightly off in the BuzzFeed story, but and then uh, exerted pressure on the Department of Justice, who then exerted pressure on Mueller to release this statement. Unless we have the statement. Okay. And, and so, you know, I think that, that I mean, that's one sort of theory of, of how the events unfolded. There's been some reporting to back it up. But here now we have Whitaker, uh, you know, uh, uh, under oath, um, you know, what happened? Did you exert any pressure? So I think it'll be those sorts of questions. I think also questions about have you uh, prevented Mueller from taking any any action? What ha have you been briefed regularly? You know, when, and, and I think what is pretty clear is that, the Department of Justice and the White House and Matthew Whitaker himself are terrified. They, you know, he, when he had his his public press conference and it was a, a total sweat fest. It looked like that that gif out of airplane where you know he's flying the plane and sweats just like <laughs> water's just like pouring out of his face. Uh, 
By the way, I, I, I saw that and I thought it was Photoshop. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Who sweats this much? And I was like, what is he? What is happening? What is this guy waiting for results? I mean, it's terrible. <laughs> yes. And I thought, I, honest to God, for days, I thought it was Photoshopped until I saw the video and I go, oh no. <laughs> No. <laughs> looks... I hope he brought like a, re- like a roll of paper towels yeah. with him to the hearing that he can just, you know. I mean, to be fair, in D.C. in the summer, that's like not all that unusual. <laughs> people are walking outside and then you come inside. But but I've you know, sweated before. Yeah. I'll admit, I've but but it's before. January and it's really yeah. cold outside. And so, uh, uh, no, I, I, I think that just demonstrated uh, he is quite nervous under any sort of public scrutiny. Uh, and in even his comments in that press conference about how the Mueller investigation, I think, is wrapping up soon, I think would also be a, a line of questioning. And I just think that he's not prepared to really go under scrutiny to answer a lot of questions that are going to come come to him and just wants to be able to have this sort of get out of a tough question free card yeah. of executive privilege. And I think one of the things that Nadler has been very smart about is that you know this is this is going to set the precedent for how mm. the administration handles oversight questions going forward. So you back down now, then what that enables is oh there's a subpoena from Congress, oh, we're just going to ignore it. Oh, Congress is requesting this document in the future whether it's about the EPA, whether it's energy department, uh, housing and urban development, no, we're just going to ignore it. And I think it's very important in these sort of opening salvos with Schiff with Nadler really set the stage. Set the stage that yeah. th- that no that and you know there is a real concern that you know this is a in some ways a very corrupt administration and it wouldn't be shocking that this administration breaks a lot of laws in not complying with congressional oversight and really stonewalls and uh, uh, efforts by Congress to, to get to the bottom of, of certain investigative leads. And so they need to set the precedent now, and I think that's what they've done this week. And the committee gave uh, Nadler the authority to be able to subpoena Whitaker at the actual hearing Yes. if Whitaker refuses to answer the question, which is extraordinary. Uh, the Justice Department yesterday sent a letter to the chairman saying that they demand a commitment from him to not use that authority uh, during the testimony. It appears they've come to some kind of agreement now where Nadler said, hey, listen, Whitaker, if you are willing to answer these questions, right, and have this conversation, I will not need to use this authority. But that's not a, I won't use this authority. And of course, then what happens uh, is if he's subpoenaed, there's probably going to be some kind of legal fight of, can Nadler go before a judge and convince that judge to hold Whitaker in contempt? And the letter, that early letter that he sent, uh, is really going to be instrumental in Nadler's case and showing to the judge, hey, look, I gave them a heads up. They had an opportunity to respond. They did not. Uh, Whitaker should be, you know, should be held in contempt if he doesn't answer. Yeah. You know, I sort of agree with Mitch McConnell's comments from from a while back when you talk about process you're losing. Yeah. And, <laughs> and I think that when when I look at the Justice Department sort of say, oh, well, you know, you don't do trying to sort of. Because usually uh, they say this takes longer. Right. Right. They need more time. And, and I think saying. Nadler's position, at least just from a public perspective, is no, just like we're ans- we're asking you reasonable questions. We expect to, you know, to you to respond to them. And what was happening over the previous two years was you're exactly right uh, in your in your lead in 
that they were just, you know, exerting executive privilege all over the place. And they, this was true not just in public hearings, but also in the House Intel Committee when mm-hmm. there would be um, uh, uh, questions asked. And that frankly doesn't doesn't fly. And, you know, that shouldn't fly. And Republicans allowed it to. And I think one of the things is that we've seen with this past election is American people want answers. And so if the administration is seen as stonewalling, okay, and that will be a legal fight. They'll go to a judge, but it also will be a political fight about Democrats asking legitimate questions and the administration refusing to answer and then going to court to try to be silent. I don't. I think, I think it's pretty obvious where the public is going to side yeah. and and who's going to look worse in that situation. Yeah. It's going to be the administration that is trying to conceal. Uh, uh, information from the public. And again, this is not how innocent people behave. No. If you have nothing to hide, you answer questions. Yes. Let me ask you about Michael Cohn, because I'm trying to figure out what is going on with him. So the man is about to go to prison. Yeah. He is, what, a month until he starts his three-year sentence. He was supposed to testify, uh, was it next week or something? That got... This week. This week. That got pushed back to February 28th. So there's really, really days left yeah. until he, he has to go away. Uh, there are other committees that are jockeying to get him to testify as well. So clearly he has some kind of information. The reason for the delay that they gave us is that there have to be some other kinds of developments in Mueller's work. So something else has to happen yeah. before he testifies. Do you have any sense of what that is, of what's going on? You also had a judge... Uh, in the last couple of days, maybe it was yesterday, yeah. uh, not redacting certain parts uh, of, uh, of, 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 I'm not it sure. It was uh, Manafort's, uh, Manafort's cooperation agreement when he lied, and this was before the judge about the judge ruling to sort of break the cooperation agreement. Yeah. And it was, I've been reading through it this morning. It's fascinating. Reading. So so what is going on with Michael Cohn is my, is okay. my question. Okay, so... <laughs> So I think we have, and will you visit him in prison? Yeah. <laughs> so I think we, you know, Michael Cohen. We, we need to put in sort of two buckets. There's Mueller investigation, and there's Southern District mm-hmm. of New York. And the Mueller investigation is very targeted on the Russia collusion. On and the, their mandate was whether the Trump campaign coordinated with the Russian government. That is what they're investigating. But when Michael Cohen was arrested, uh, you know, they raided the the Southern District of New York and FBI agents raided his office, his hotel, his apartment. And this was in, in on April 9th of 2018. You know, one thing I, I sort of picked up in, in readings something over the last few, uh, few weeks was that on April 5th. So just a few days before. Mm-hmm. So April 9th was a Monday on the previous Thursday. Michael Cohen was actually on a yacht in my off Miami Beach with this uh, with this donor to the Trump uh, Trump uh, inaugural committee uh-huh. that gave uh, one million dollars the Trump inauguration because he was effectively trying to get a five billion dollar loan from the Department of Energy and on this yacht so was this this uh, this donor and the Qatari sovereign wealth fund the representatives <laughs> uh, so Michael Cohen I think was clearly involved in multiple pay to play schemes that are allegedly mm-hmm. and you know that a lot of that was reported at the time um and so one of the questions is you know that ha- you know these charges haven't really been brought about potential bribery and official corruption and one question I have is did all that money that was put going to Michael Cohen to where for his influence peddling just go to Michael Cohen or yeah. did that go to someone else, perhaps someone that you know lives in sixteen hundred individual one, individual one, <laughs> and 
And so I think one of, you know, when we think about the article of the Constitution and, and the impeachment clause of the Constitution. As you do frequently. As I do frequently. <laughs> there's, you know, there's three things it says. It says, first thing is treason. And, you know, treason, you need to be an act of war, according to lawyers, for that to be used. Then there's high crimes and misdemeanors, which doesn't really have any real legal meaning. And the third is very specific, and it's bribery. And so one of the questions is, you know, is Michael Cohen is the Southern District of New York with the the look the subpoenaing of the inauguration uh, committee? Yeah, we'll get into that in um, a second. Uh, are we going down sort of a, a line of of of, of official bribery uh, and corrupt and corruption? And one of the things that is just to pivot quickly to the Manafort cooperation uh -huh. agreement. I know this gets complicated. What was what's been very interesting in reading through this is it is that it basically confirms what we were thinking, right? That that this is about the Russian collusion. Mueller is about the Russian government's effort to inter interfere with the campaign. He's looking at the meetings and contacts that Manafort was having with his right-hand man who was a Russian intelligence officer, and he had multiple meetings during the election, then after the election, during the inauguration. And as and so these media kept on and so so you know things are redacted so it's you yeah. have to kind of piece certain things together sometimes not well but it yeah not, sometimes not well <laughs> uh, but it mentions that Manafort one of the complicating factors in 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 this was that Manafort may be trying to get a pardon and it says that explicitly and what it, so what does that tell us it tells us that it is what we think it is that when going after Manafort they're going that why would they why would the special counsel's office be worried that Manafort might get a pardon why would Trump pardon Manafort because Manafort is going to provide evidence that implicates the president of the United States that's the only reason for Trump to pardon Manafort and so i think you know it just sort of further confirms where this is headed where this is going this is going you know, towards the president, it, we're, we're down to not very many senior people left for this to, <laughs> to really target. So in terms of the investigation into the inaugural committee, now, whew, we have, we, Mueller, I don't have him, has tapes uh, of conversations that Michael Cohn recorded for some reason between him and the and I don't know her name, uh, but this is the the woman who was helping organize the inaugural committee, okay. who's very good friends with Trump, uh, and she organized eighteen of the parties uh, and really helped head it up. She, in conversations with Michael Cohn, complained to Michael Cohn about all of the shady things that were happening surrounding the inauguration, surrounding the Trump organization. And there's a real sense that the Trumps and the children were very involved in all of this stuff, that they were using the inauguration, this is going to shock you, Max, <laughs> to personally profit. <laughs> uh, what what do we know about how that's unfolding? So, uh, well, I, I I mean, I think it's been unfolding for a while, too. So the, Many you know, folds the, to Yes, this. the deputy chair of the inaugural committee was none other than Rick Gates, who yes, is now, right. who's been cooperating for more than a year. And there's all this foreign money pouring in to the inaugural committee, oftentimes through cutouts. And Mueller has even brought uh, charges against someone for acting as sort of a, a cutout, a go-between, to basically take this foreign money to say, okay, I'll pretend it's from me and then pass it on to the uh, inauguration. All of this just looks like straight 
pay-to-play corruption. And it's a little bit like once Trump and his team won the election, it was the fox in the hen house that, you know, so people who their entire business life has been about sort of these sort of grifting ideas, trying to just make money here and there, uh, didn't change. You know, they, they got in, they suddenly said, oh, we can monetize this. We can take advantage of this. There's just a problem for them, which is called the law, which is called, you you know, you're... you're it's go- called the, the law. law. It's called you're going to be a government official. You can't do that. Uh, it's called corruption. And so uh, that to it's me... It's called presidential harassment. <laughs> <laughs> and so, so you, you know, I think one of the things is that these, you know, that this just, that they're not also that clever and that smart about masking any of this. I think there was an air of hubris also around at that time, a, a lack of bit, yeah. a lack of understanding that you know being president doesn't mean you're king, doesn't mean the rules don't apply to you, doesn't mean you can get away with everything. In fact, we are a nation of laws, and, and hopefully, no one is above the law. And and so this sense of impunity, and also, hey, we're not in government yet, so maybe we can take this money now. So I think that is going to be a major focus of the of the more uh, investigation in the Southern District of New York. About what what did these people when they, what did these foreign governments think they were getting when they were pouring money into this inauguration? Where does the Mueller investigation stand? Because we've heard that it's about to finish. We're about to get some kind of report. Do we have any sense of what the progress? Yeah, is? Yeah. Like? So so I think what's clear we're in the fourth quarter. Ooh. Now we don't really know is is have we is A the two minute analogy I understand yeah, is is the two minute warning happened or is this the is, is the game about to now end? a warning that, uh, um, or do we have a ways to go I think the Cohen delaying his testimony is uh, you know to the end of the month is somewhat suggestive that maybe there there could be some movement in the next few weeks. Uh, Rod Rosenstein, there was reporting early in January right. that he was thinking about uh, resigning, but it was going to wait until the Mueller investigation ended, and he was thinking about at the end of February. Uh, I'm also going on vacation <laughs> in about a week, and for for a week, and so I think I've or maybe not. I, you know, well, <laughs> We're about to find out if you're going or not. I, I think I've circled that as as like prime target where you know how could how could Mueller wreck my vacation? It's like okay, um, so I think there's a lot of, a lot of things sort of coming together, um, but you know I don't know. We you know it's it's been very unclear. I think we are looking at uh, the. You know, between now and the summer, at the very least, because I think this is going to be very damning of the president, in my view. I think it's almost certain. And because of that, he's Congress is going to need time to process this. And Mueller will also look at America's political process and say, hey, 2020 election season is about to start. And that if this is as damning as I think it is, and if we are going down that that little, you know, I word process, the impeachment process, then the Republican Party may need to have time to select an, an alter, a new potential nominee in the 2020 cycle. And, you know, it's not to sort of prejudge this of where this is going, but I think all indications are that the president of the United States knowingly participated in this cons- Russian conspiracy to interfere the election. Uh, and the idea that he didn't, that he wasn't aware, is just completely nonsensical, given that we know the simple fact that Donald Trump ran the Trump campaign. And we know this yeah. because literally everyone <laughs> said it at the time, yep. including Trump himself, every embedded political reporter. So I think that's where we're headed. And I think that's the that's the writ of the Mueller investigation, to get to the bottom of Russia collusion. 
and he's making a lot of headway. A lot of people have been indicted. A lot of people are cooperating. Um, and so, you know, the walls, I think, are clearly closing in. Max Bergman, he's a senior fellow at the Center for American Progress on Twitter, at Max Bergman, double N, and AmericanProgress.org. Max, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be back right after. Take the Bill Press Show anywhere you go. Download our free podcast, search for the Bill Press Show on iTunes, and catch the highlights from every show. We are anywhere and everywhere you want to be. The Bill Press Show on this Friday, February 8th, 2019. I'm Igor Volsky sitting in for Bill Press. You know, we started out the week talking about the State of the Union, but given all of the stuff that has happened since then, does anyone even remember that speech? Matt Gertz is the Senior Fellow at Media Matters for America, or a Senior Fellow. Maybe maybe they refer to you as THE Senior Fellow. I'm the only one, as far as oh, I know. Oh, are you the right only now? one? Yes. Oh, oh, okay. Well, you know, as you know, I come from the world of CAP, where there are Senior Fellows and sure, Senior so. The senior fellow <laughs> at Media Matters, Matt Gertz. You know him on Twitter, an excellent Twitter follow at Matt Gertz. That's with a Z, Gertz. And of course, MediaMatters.org. Matt, so good to see you. Welcome to the program. So good to see you too. Always happy to be here. I was traveling yesterday uh, and in the airport, I bought a copy of the Wall Street Journal and I was reading through and flipping through. And I turned the page and I see a full page ad from Fox News bragging about the fact that they're the most watched network for the State of the Union. They had their viewership numbers and then MSNBC and CNN and NBC and CBS and ABC and they were like, we put them to shame. And the graphics for that ad were basically the Fox News political team. So you had Chris Wallace, you had Brett Baer, you had Martha McCallum, you had, I forgot her name again, Perino, Dana Perino, uh, and you had Laura Ingram, who kind of stood out as the opinion person, but everyone else, I guess Perino too is an opinion person, uh, everyone else, they were really showing us that they covered this uh, speech like a real news organization with real tough analysis, you did us all the favor of actually watching Fox News after the speech. And as we were we, as we were talking, as you came in, you noted there was a real difference between that ad, how they portrayed their coverage and what the Fox News coverage of the State of the Union actually looked like. Yeah, um, it looked Brief, I guess I would say. <laughs> uh, you know, they're in Real that pithy, <laughs> as Bill Riley would say, right? Indeed. Keep it pithy, and they did. Uh, so, you know, the speech starts at nine; it ends at ten uh, thirty, and over the next half hour, you have about fifteen minutes of uh, actual political talk from that vaunted uh, crew, uh, <laughs> split around the Stacey Abrams uh, speech. Then uh, they went to commercial, they came back, and it was time for Sean Hannity's show. <laughs> there was nothing he could do. He was scheduled. It's his show. What 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 can you do? So you oh, just have you to break, you have to have Sean Hannity on saying it's Sean. basically the greatest speech yeah. of all time. And you know, he brings out uh, you know, the Ted Cruz is there, Lindsey Graham, Eric Trump, Lara Trump, uh, and they all agree agree that the speech was very very good so you know once you have 
<laughs> that group of people all agreeing. Inclu- the president's own son says, so it must let's, be the case. Let's, let's talk about the tone of Fox News these days. You know, there was a time where I used to watch a lot of cable news. I don't anymore, and I feel so much healthier. So <laughs> I thank you, by the way, for, for taking on uh, that role. Has the tone these days, has it changed at all? I mean, it feels like, to some degree, the walls are beginning to close in, particularly on the Russia stuff. I mean, there's you know all kinds of congressional oversight happening now that wasn't happening before, that... Uh, this administration is really struggling. And so in those 15 minutes, in what their slogan is real opinion, real news, real honest opinion, right? That's it, yes. So in that real news portion, how is the tone of analysts like Chris Wallace or Brett Baer? Is there a degree of criticism in what they say? I mean, it's the sort of thing where you... I mean, Wallace has always been pretty sharp. Yeah. Um, You know, it's basically, it's, it's straight up, political optics coverage so you know mm. the president he's reaching out here he's not reaching out there what does it mean what's the strategy involved um and you know kind of like obviously, a horse racy it's it's quite political sure it's yeah. quite surface level there was nothing resembling a fact check which i thought was kind of shocking that given that shocking. i mean you know we're, we're at a point uh in this presidency where everyone basically knows that the president lies all of the time yeah uh, i think the the Washington Post fact checker count is somewhere around 8,500 falsehoods and misleading statements. Daniel Dale, see numbers that uh, high. at Toronto yeah. Star, uh, only looks at, fa- at specific falsehoods, and he's at 4,500. So, you know, the president lies a lot. Uh, it's incumbent on any news organization that actually cares about informing their uh, audience to explain that. Um, and Fox just doesn't. It's just not a thing. It was not part of their coverage in any meaningful way. Uh, and, you know, how could it be with 15 minutes of time to talk about the president's speech <laughs> and the Democratic response? Uh, There's just enough, not enough time for a I, fact check. I, I guess they were counting on Hannity to do it. Yeah. I don't know. Uh-huh. And that, you know, he, he must have run out of time, too. He was, he was almost, he was, he was planning on getting it in there somewhere, but... Uh, it is amazing to me that he had the entire Trump family on. I mean, it's practically... <laughs> The entire Trump family. No, 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 no. It was just it was just Eric and Laura on his show, and then uh, Don Jr. was on the next morning oh, on Fox oh, and Friends. Okay. Yeah, let's not get crazy, okay. Igor. You can't have them all at once. You got they they spread the Trumps around a little bit, you know. Uh, and and uh, the, the oh god. And so the, at the end of the Donald Trump Jr. interview, Brian Kilmeade goes, "He'll have like a big." political career if he wants it oh yeah so that's oh. that's the next thing oh is that if so? don junior doesn't end up in jail yeah. <laughs> big he's huge. got two yeah. career paths jail or the presidency <laughs> great that's great you know that actually scares the hell out of me because you you look at the speeches that both eric and uh and donald gay donald jr gave at the republican national convention and they both clearly want to get their hands on this political game that their father is in now. Well, they want to get into the game of using elected office to enrich themselves. Oh, That's the duh. game. Yes, yes, obviously, exactly. Yeah. To just really state the obvious. Uh, let's talk a bit about Jeff Bezos, because last yesterday, I guess, you had a crazy, crazy development in that story. Now, the background here, and you're going to have to help me a little bit. I've sure. been following this very closely. 
that Jeff Bezos and his longtime wife announced they were divorcing. This was several months ago now, or it was maybe early January. Early January. It just feels like several feels months. like yeah, a real yeah. long it time was, ago. It was several years ago. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just learning about it now. Uh, and the National Enquirer, after that announcement, published stories about uh, the mistress that Jeff Bezos had. Uh, there were photos that I guess they didn't publish, but they were getting close to publishing. Um, and yesterday, Jeff Bezos posts uh, a very uh, uh, unusual post in which he accuses the publisher of the National Enquirer of basically blackmailing him and threatening to publish all of these text messages between him and his mistress and photos. Uh, and Jeff Bezos says, I'm not going to be susceptible to this. I'm speaking out publicly in my goodness, what must have been a painful thing to write. Uh, what is happening? <laughs> <laughs> Quite a lot. So part of the backstory here is that after the initial um, National Enquirer story came out, which was based on both uh, photos that they obtained by, I guess, following uh, Bezos uh, and the woman that he was seeing, mm -hmm. uh, Lauren Sanchez, who's a TV host, uh, around the country, uh, but also through text messages uh, between the two, of and that them. they think the Jeff Bezos's brother it's may unclear. have unclear. So he's in, it's so crazy. so Bezos he's a Trump supporter. Bezos doesn't invest. Is basically yeah. um, you know has unlimited resources because he's the richest man alive, <laughs> uh, and so decides to find out how did my texts end up in the hands of the National Enquirer. So he has his security team start doing an investigation into this. Uh, a couple of days ago. Uh, the head of that investigation told the Washington Post, which Jeff Bezos owns uh, <laughs> and where my wife works, full disclosure, <laughs> full disclosure. Um, that they believed that there was a political motive, uh, a, a political actor in some way. Yeah. Here, I, um, I, 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 want, I want to read this really quick sure. because what, there was a Washington, Post, Washington Post reporter who said that Bezos' investigator suspects that, quote, a government agency. No, you're getting ahead of me. You're getting ahead oh, of me. Okay, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Hold I'm on. sorry. I'm sorry. I'll, I'll, I'll get to that. Up. I'll get I'm to that. Sorry. So, so at I'm first, sorry. it's just that there's some sort of political involvement, which raises questions about Donald Trump, because as mm -hmm. we know, Donald Trump, longtime friendship and sort of business association with David Pecker. David Pecker. Oh my God. Can we just say really quickly, shout the out. The writers are really. <laughs> HuffPost yesterday <laughs> with the headline of the day says, Bezos exposes Pecker. Oh, boy. Oh, goodness. So- uh, Pecker uh, played a key role during the 2016 election in doing catch and kill stuff around right. uh, the, one of the stories uh, involving uh, Donald Trump and a mistress. Um, in uh, obviously because there's always some sort of illegal Mueller-related angle, uh, <laughs> the uh, AMI is now testifying, or is it now has like a cooperation agreement with and the Southern Pecker District of New York, has a and Pecker does as well, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, related to uh, that effort because it, it uh, potentially involved illegal payments um, uh, that like violated campaign finance law, um, and uh, according to Michael Cohen, involved the president. So all, all of that is sort of, that's backstory. So uh, the uh, head of the investigation tells the Washington Post, we think there's a political actor, and that's when the emails start. That's when uh, the National Enquirer goes to Jeff Bezos and says, 
we really would like you to not say that. We'd like you to end your investigation. And if you don't end your investigation and say that there, that is in fact not true, that there was some sort of political involvement, uh, we have these pictures uh, that you took of yourself um, and various other uh, yeah. photos that are... Uh, would it would be a shame if they got out into the public eye <laughs> i as an editor take no pleasure in telling you this uh which is one of the great lines i yeah. think uh so that's what really kicked it off it's the the, the investigation was getting too close to something apparently mm. uh, and so in retaliation and to keep that from getting any further uh the threat about the photos uh came out and so then comes the question again i mean all along the question has been sort of where did the texts come from? How did the National Enquirer get them? There's been some question about whether uh, the brother, uh, as you said, uh, of uh, Linda Sanchez was involved in some way. Oh, it's Linda Sanchez, not of Jeff Bezos. No, yeah, it's Linda Sanchez's oh, okay. brother who is associated with Roger Stone and um, oh. Carter Page oh, and that whole course. world. And so there are questions about whether there was some involvement there. Uh, there and as uh, and uh, the the other question is is whether there's some sort of connection to a foreign government uh, or or a government agency. I think is how it was phrased uh, on the news last night. Um, there's a lot. There's a surprising amount of stuff in the Bezos blog post about Saudi Arabia. Oh, really? Um, which is an odd thing to include. Uh, the Saudis obviously had some sort of relationship with uh, AMI and the National Enquirer. Uh, AMI put out a sort of glossy mag about how great uh, MBS is mm. a couple of years ago as part of his effort to brand himself a as a great... Yeah. Uh, uh, a, a reformer, great reformer, former sure. leader. Yeah. Uh, so... I mean that, and so what? So what does Bezos say about Saudi Arabia? Uh, he he just sort of mentions in mentions in passing a couple of times associations between Saudi Arabia and AMI. Um, oh, wow! And there's just not a real reason for that to be in there unless he either wants us to think there's a reason to suspect there's a connection, or he actually thinks that there's some sort of connection. I mean, the two ways you get uh, text messages like this are a direct leak mm -hmm. uh where like linda sanchez is doing it direct or sorry not linda sanchez uh sorry i'm forgetting her name the uh, where, where uh, the, the mistress is, the is mistress, somehow yeah. providing the text directly yep. yeah the second way would be like someone got a hold of her phone somehow and just took them right, all and sent right, them out right. third way is there's a hack there's of some a hack sort, yeah. right and i mean i think we've seen a good amount of stories recently that relate to sort of middle eastern hacking operations as mm. part of wide-scale PR and media-related offensives, so maybe that's what's going on. It's hard to say you know, at this it's point. It's a little surprising to me that the richest man in the world, yeah. who you know has all kinds of business interests and uh, even outside of, of this personal matter, that he wouldn't have the most secure phone slash apps slash communication devices that money could possibly buy, like military-grade security. It's shocking if it was in fact a hack that it and it gives me a, you know a real sense of if they could get into Jeff Bezos's phone like <laughs> watch out people <laughs> yeah it's kind of tricky um, I guess the the other thing that surprises me about this whole thing is because it seems uh, quite plausible that AMI does this sort of blackmail extortion stuff all the time uh, Ronan Farrow right after went after the Bezos story dropped said well, yeah they tried to do basically the same thing to me um, when he was reporting on the company. Um, like 
why do you write that all out in an email? Yeah. Like, you're going to put it on paper? That's a Snapchat message. The stuff. Well, this is very consistent. This idea. is very consistent with the way that the Trumps do stuff, right? You look at we Donald know Trump why Jr. They're friends. Yeah, 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 exactly. I mean, you look at what Donald Trump Jr. did when people were sent, you talking about the Trump Tower meeting, and he said, oh, no, these are, this is what we talked about, and then just showed the emails of crimes. Yeah, there's a great piece from uh, Adam Serwer at The Atlantic about the, the Trump tendency to do this. It's, it's, it's uh, I think it's called uh, the Skinner Bell problem. The Trump Skinner <laughs> Stringer Bell, Bell, Stringer Stringer Bell, Bell problem. Stringer Bell from right, The Wire, yeah. Right, because in The Wire... Uh, there's a scene in which uh, Stringer Bell comes across uh, one of the one of his criminal compatriots taking notes on the notes of the meeting and and makes a big deal about that because Robert's rules for order of order are not really uh, what you want to follow in never, a criminal conspiracy. Never put it in writing. Never <laughs> not a, put it not in a good writing. Idea. <laughs> do do better at your crimes, people. <laughs> yeah, I mean, Work, come on. Try harder. Really, <laughs> an embarrassment. So. The goal here, it appears, of whatever happened, and we'll get to the bottom of something eventually, is to humiliate Jeff Bezos. Well, the goal here is to keep Jeff Bezos from going down the rabbit hole and finding out what AMI is up to, right? Uh. They want to shut him up and prevent the investigation from moving forward, and so the threats are a way to keep that from Uh. happening. Um, And so Bezos uh, seems to not, obviously, not be willing to go through with that since he just told us what they have very, very publicly and basically said, I am like, he basically says, like, uh, I have to do this because if they can do this to me, the richest man in the world, imagine what they can do to like literally everybody else. So, I mean, this is what happens when you have like a few money. This is what happens. (laughs) Is this right here? You're like, I don't care. Put the pics on the Internet. I'll be fine. I'll retweet them even. (laughs) Uh, do do with it whatever you want. Wow. Well, we will we will really <laughs> let's let's stay on top of this story because it feels like you know it feels like when you and it look if I'm Trump or whoever's orchestrating this pissing off the richest man in the world who has unlimited resources and isn't bound by all kinds of rules like you are as an elected official. To me, seems like a bad idea. Perhaps, perhaps seems not like the a really, really bad idea that's gonna come back to like really haunt you. So, FYI, for what that's a free public service announcement to the to the Trump family or whoever may be or may not be behind this. But Pecker, because he has that that uh, immunity deal, right, and the company AMI, they're both cooperating. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it feels like. Th- you know, we were talking about how they're friends with the Trump family. Maybe not anymore uh, if they're part of kind of helping uncover all of this stuff. Yeah, again, unclear. But uh, so one interesting thing that happened was after the Bezos story uh, came out, Trump actually tweeted about the the, the original one uh, about him and his mistress. Mm-hmm. He actually tweeted that that uh, Jeff Bezos had been exposed by a, a publication that is much more reputable than the one that he owns. Oh. Uh, oh. So that's that's another interesting another interesting connection here um, is that back in 2017, uh, Joe Scarborough and Mika Brzezinski basically uh, came out and said that uh, they had been told by the White House that some bad stuff was going to be published in the National Enquirer about them if they didn't like this. Yeah. get Trump to stop it. And uh, it's about and then, their love affair, right? But, yeah. And then uh, he <laughs> would later tweet, 
that they had asked him to stop it and he uh, said no. So, Wait, I'm sorry. So they asked Trump to... Uh, I, I'm I'm unclear enough about the details about whether they actually did it or whether they were told that they should. I see. And, you know, Trump lies all the time, so who heck knows? knows what's yeah. going on at any real point. But um, the the idea was that there was a a way you could get the National Enquirer to stop publishing bad stories about you by going through Donald Trump. Yeah. Okay. Which, you know... Now we're pulling we're pulling together a lot of strands that seemed very separate, but maybe are more connected than we thought. Yeah, uh, and it's going to take take some time and investigation to really get a sense of what exactly is going on here. But it's probably not good. Generally speaking, most things are not good. Most things are very bad. Uh, so the shutdown uh, was not exactly a political win for this president. Uh, he's now in a situation where Republicans in Congress are telling him, don't use your don't declare a national emergency. We're not going to go for another shutdown like we have to figure this spending thing out. You know, and there's some kind of early maybe signs of cracks within the conservative base and support for Trump. I don't know if those numbers went down for him of support within the Republican Party. But certainly the political environment in February of 2019 is a little different than what it had been previously for him within his base. And I'm curious about, are we seeing in Fox News, in the larger conservative media world, any kind of moving away from the president, especially as, you know, they get ready or maybe they're not getting ready, who knows, for the publication of the Mueller report and whatever comes out there. Is there any effort to for the conservative movement as a whole to distance themselves from Trump to like preserve the conservative movement, right? So it doesn't crumble along with whatever happens to him. Are you seeing any distance? Not really. Uh, you know, no. you have okay. the sort of. <laughs> You have the sort of uh, core of the Never Trump movement, um, which uh, remains sort of against him. But broadly speaking, the conservatives have largely gotten on board mm -hmm. uh, in ways that are just make it very difficult for them to, to get off again. Yeah, to unpeel uh, themselves. Right. You have the RNC basically rewriting the rules to make it really, really hard for anyone who's not Donald Trump to be the next nominee. That's right. Uh, sort of forestalling any sort of uh, real primary effort. And even if there was one, I mean, uh, Trump's support in the Republican Party is still, you know, 75, 80, 85 percent, depending on which poll you look at. Uh, he's broadly popular with his base. Mm -hmm. Um and the, you know, it's it's always sort of unclear which way the direction is moving on this, whether it is that the base is happy, so the uh, sort of conservative media megaphone is just giving them what they want, or if they're giving, they're putting out all of this pro-Trump stuff, and in return, the base is responding to that and, and is remaining uh, connected to the president. Mm -hmm. um, but they really feed each other. In they ways. do. Yeah. It, and, you know, it's... It's an interesting situation where uh, everyone seems to want to go down with the ship. Yeah. Um, and real, know, sh real short, short term thinking there. It feels I, like. I guess so. Um, they seem to think it'll, it's going to work out. And, you know, to some extent, it's not like Trump isn't achieving many 
terrible conservative goals and right. stacking the courts yeah. for a generation and so on yeah. and so forth. And they're pretty happy about right. that. Right. Uh, but yeah, I mean, the last election was uh, very, very bad for Republicans. The president seems, uh, can you know, sort of wedded to saying that it was actually good uh, that, um, you know, they took a couple of Senate seats. Even Ugh, they North should've... Dakota. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, I think anyone looking at the map uh, in late 2016 would have said, God, 2018 mm -hmm. is probably going to be really tough for Democrats. Uh, you know, the Senate map was a total nightmare and coming yeah. away with only losing two seats was pretty good. Yeah. And of course, you know, taking back the House and being able to do the investigations and oversight that Republicans had shamefully uh, ignored for the first two years of the Trump administration uh, is an unalloyed good. Um, but yeah, they, uh, the president was basically wedded to saying, actually, everything's fine uh, and going forward with the government shutdown immediately after. Um, and, you know, the conservative movement has been happy to cheer that uh, for the most part. You do see, uh, as you mentioned, this sort of pushback from uh, Republicans, senators in particular, around the idea of the National Emergency Declaration. Maybe it holds, maybe it doesn't. Yeah. Fox really wants it. And that was key for the shutdown in the first place. So, uh, Policy by Fox. Matt Gertz, Senior Fellow at Media Matters for America at Matt Gertz. I'm Igor Volsky. Thank you so much for watching. Have a great weekend. Bye-bye. This is The Bill Press Show.